0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Parents want their children to be more safe and confident explorers of the digital world. But sometimes it can be tricky to find the balance. So Google created Be Internet Legends. It's a free learning program that teaches children online safety skills through PSHE accredited resources for teachers and a fun online game for families too. In partnership with ParentZone, be Internet Legends has reached over 70% of UK primary schools with its free toolkits and school assemblies. To find out more and see how Google's resources can help your school,
1: search Be Internet Legends. Hello, and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life, and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Ian Dale, who is an award-winning broadcaster and presenter of The Evening Show on LBC. And he's also the editor of a magnificent new book called The President's 250 Years of American Political Leadership. Ian, this book, I think, is a very nice joining book to an earlier book you edited called Prime Ministers. I wondered if you could take us through... The sort of process of, of when did you decide to do the President's book? Is obviously off the back of the Prime yeah. Minister's book? I had the idea of doing the
0: President's as a follow-up some time ago, but the publishers weren't very keen. I thought, well, that's a shame, because it's, it just seemed to be an obvious thing to do. They didn't think it would be commercial enough. And then at the end of the Trump presidency and then the presidential election, they decided that there was a lot of interest in American politics after all, so they gave the green light. So I had slightly less time than I would have liked to put it all together. And just to make clear, I haven't written it, I've edited it. So mm. there are 45 different contributors. And people always say, well, why only 45? Because Joe Biden's the 46th president. It's a good quiz question, actually. Because Grover Cleveland served for two separate terms. Mm. So it was a bit like herding cats at times to get the 45 people on board and then writing it to the I'm well deadlines. aware of that. I wasn't going to say anything for that, <laughs> But I, we should say that you've written We should it. explain. You've
1: written the chapter on Nixon, and very good it is too. Oh, thanks, Ian. That's very kind. <laughs> I know it was difficult herding it altogether. But I, I wondered whether, I mean, obviously it's difficult to make comparisons about these types of things, but I wondered whether sort of there were themes that struck you about what's different between a president and a prime minister. That is a very interesting question. No one's
0: asked me that before. I think the, the, the main difference is that the office of presidency is held in such regard in America very different to the office of prime minister here. Until Donald Trump rather shattered this, sort of, it didn't matter what your politics were. You had an innate respect for the office of presidency and the incumbent. Here, I'm not so sure that that's true. We don't really think so much of the office of prime minister. Now, there were. My book came out last year. Anthony Seldon did one. Mark Garnett did one. Steve Richards did one. So there is a lot of literature now about the office and how it's developed. In America, that was there years ago. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of books written about the
1: office of president. But bizarrely, no one has done a book in this format. Yes, That is bizarre because it would have seemed to do, you know, a chapter on each president would seem to be an obvious thing to do. I think it's possibly an advantage that this is a a British book. Most of the authors are British, I think, in that Americans are very wrapped up in the idea of the presidency. And it it stops them having a sort of objective view, I think, about it. It's a bit like us writing about kings and queens or something. Yeah, that's my next book. (laughs) (laughs) You'd have to get loads of Americans to write about
0: it. I think that is true. Ten of the 45 are Americans, but they've got some link to this country. Mm. The opening chapter, which I think is actually one of the best, on George Washington, is written by Mitchell Reese, who was ambassador to Northern Ireland during the peace process, or just afterwards for George W. Bush. And my best friend, Daniel Forrester, he's written the second chapter. So it is a mix, but I think you're right. You can get a different perspective. This has actually been, it's been quite a challenge to get an American publisher for this. So it's published in the UK by Hodder and Stoughton, who are part of Hachette. They can't quite cope with the fact that most of the chapters are written by Brits. So I mm. think, well, how, how does that work? How will that sell in the States? So the American publication, we're actually delaying. It'll be available on Kindle and Audible in America now, or from Thursday. But the hardback won't be published in America until
1: next year. I think it was Adrian Woolbridge, the journalist, said to me once that he came back from working in America covering Washington and he had to get back to working in Westminster politics and he said it was a bit like sort of going from crack cocaine back to alcohol <laughs> I wouldn't and know you, you well, just couldn- <laughs> <care>. <laughs> <laughs> Well he said you just can't get the same high from British politics that you get from American politics. Do you know what he means? I kind of do. Washington DC is my favorite
0: city in the world or or it- Always has been until comparatively recently. Me too. Much gone, maligned, I think. It's gone downhill a lot. All the yeah. places that I used to hang out in in the sort of late eighties, nineties—they've all gone. So whenever I go back there, now, I'm incredibly disappointed that all my old haunts aren't there anymore. But you're right. If you're part of the Beltway, it is a bit like the Westminster bubble, but on acid. So yeah. he's right. He's right from that point of view. And I think if you're sort of you have the contacts, you can have the most amazing time in Washington. The way they do scandals, I mean, we we have our own scandals, as we've seen in the last few weeks, but they tend to be a little bit tame compared to American ones.
1: Yes. I mean, you're a political animal. You know, you you say in your introduction, you've always read a lot of books about American presidents and things. Is this a sort of a fascination that has gripped you more and more as you have got older, or was it something that you became obsessed with when you were in America? Well, in a way, it's become less and less. But I mean, it's
0: bizarre, given that I've now done the book. But when I first went to America in 87, I discovered American secondhand bookshops, which are just fabulous. And they are massive as well. Some amazing Um, ones in Washington. Yeah. I remember coming back on one of my first trips with a second suitcase full of secondhand books, predominantly about American elections or presidents. And I read dozens of them. But what's been interesting in doing this book, it showed me how little I knew about about the American presidents. I knew quite a lot about post-war ones. But the great thing about this is you can dip in and out of all the 19th century ones and you learn about how slavery has become this running sore throughout presidencies. I mean, even even up to today, it has its effect. And The Black Lives Matter movement it essentially exists because slavery existed. Mm. And I'm not sure I'd really got all the nuances of the American Civil War or indeed the independence movement. So it's taught me an awful lot. And the great thing is, a bit like the Prime Minister's, every single one of these presidents is a character. And part of the idea of the book is that you can read. They're all between, I think, 1,500 words and 6,000 words. So they're, they're not that long. You can read about a president and then think, oh, I'd like to find out more about him. Ulysses Grant, for example. I'd have heard of Ulysses Grant, but I didn't know much about him before. But reading the chapter on him... I mean it's such a fascinating figure and there is his autobiography is still in print bizarrely Mm. so there's lots more that you can then go and read if you really want to
1: Well reading through it what struck me was something that often strikes me when I read about American history which is that it's it's always in intense crisis everything is always high drama and that's why it's so gripping and why the presidency is such a gripping story
0: yeah, there is a lot of drama. One of the interesting things I found was the the presidents from the, I don't know, from, say from Abraham Lincoln through to Warren Harding, they all had to deal with corruption and the fact that some of them came from the sort of Tammany Hall, New York City sort of traditions and obviously that, that was right there. And a lot of them it was one of their main platforms to try and eliminate corruption. But the, given that these presidents lasted, what, 50 or 60 years, it, it, and I don't think anybody would say that they actually managed it in the end. But it's something that not many countries, I think, have that theme going through. The, the other thing also is the, it made me understand much more about US-British relations. I mean, I knew about the role of Britain in the War of Independence and the colonies and all of that. But over the course of the next hundred years, there was a real tense relationship between Britain and the United States. And it was really only in the... We we talk about the special relationship now. Winston Churchill coined that phrase in 1944. It's never been used before. Because our relations with America were slightly difficult. And there were various crises. Even going up to the days of Theodore Roosevelt, there was a possibility of war with Britain Mm. over various sort of bones of contention in terms of colonial interests. So and when you look through the post-war presidents and you think well how did this special relationship develop and has it been a consistent relationship well no it hasn't you you had various you had Suez so obviously Eisenhower fell out greatly with Eden over that he eventually even then resigned you had Nixon and Heath couldn't stand each other. And a lot of the relationships are built on personal chemistry. LBJ and Howard Wilson, I think, got on reasonably well. But, of course, as soon as Wilson said, no, we're not sending troops to Vietnam, that relationship shattered somewhat. And then moving on to more recent presidencies. I mean, Tony Blair with Clinton and Bush, probably the closest relationship, I think, that any British prime minister has had with with American presidents. And that was, in Clinton's case, based on personal chemistry, They got on with each other right from the off. With Bush, I think the relationship developed. And Blair just decided that, well, the closer I stay to these guys, the more influence I'm going to have. Now, you can argue whether that was the right decision or not. And everyone thinks that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were the closest of any presidents. Well, up to a point, because they did have some quite fierce rows. Mm. Uh, Well, she had a row and he listened. (laughs) There was one famous occasion when American troops invaded Grenada, and she wasn't informed. The Queen's head of state in Grenada, so you would have thought the Americans might have actually consulted their main ally, but they didn't. And she rang Reagan to tear him off a strip, and he happened to be in the middle of a cabinet meeting, but they put her through, and he got this earful from her, and then held the phone up so they could all hear what she was saying, and just he just said, isn't she wonderful? <laughs>
1: I oh, mean, you could almost do a book of special relationships with a chapter on each pairing.
0: There have been quite a lot of books on the special relationship, and I think Geoffrey Wheatcroft—I may have got this wrong—I think he wrote one, doing a chapter well, on each. No, or maybe he just did Reagan and Thatcher. I can't remember, but you give me an idea for another book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, finally, it's a it's a boringly obvious question, but I wanted to ask you: Was there a president that you have, through doing this book, discovered great reverence for that you thought before was awful? Is there one that has emerged as your hero that you never really accepted before? And is there one that you now think a lot less of? Well, given that from most of the 19th century ones I didn't really know much about
0: before doing the book, I think one of the most interesting ones was Andrew Jackson, who was the Trump of his day. It was ultra-populist politics. Before Andrew Jackson, the presidential candidates hadn't campaigned. They would just stay at home and people would come to them. He was the first one to launch a campaign and also the first one to use really professional political literature. But he it, it really was a populist. And, of course, that all the presidents at that time had to deal with the conflict between the northern states and the southern states, and they kind of all had to pick a side a bit. And he was very much one of the most controversial presidents of that time. I'm not saying I have a huge reverence for him, but I think I find him quite an interesting one. He was a disruptor. He was a disruptor, absolutely. The one which I suppose that I lived through and possibly didn't have much time for was Clinton. I think reading Poppy Trowbridge's essay in this book has maybe slightly reevaluate my view of Clinton and probably put him further up the league table than I might have done otherwise because I think everything is clouded by the Lewinsky scandal and it probably always will be to an extent but if you look at what he did in, on the economy in America I mean a fantastic economic record and Simon Heffer's chapter on Reagan is is superb and it was interesting, your, your chapter on Nixon, I was particularly interested in because I've read more books on Nixon than anybody else in It American made it very Politics. terrifying to follow this piece. I, I, mean, I find him a fascinating character. And again, you can't really do this, but if you take Watergate out of the equation, you'd have to put him down as a very good president. I mean, yeah. I mean We can argue whether he should have built up the relationship with China that he did, but I think that was quite, maybe only he could have done that. His relationship with the Soviets was very interesting. I think domestically, actually, he did a really good job. We can argue a lot about Vietnam, but I think generally, if you exclude Watergate, he would have to certainly be in in the top... 15 presidents and he i never met him but i've been to i don't know if you've been to his library in uh, your belinda i never have well if you're ever in los angeles go it is the most amazing experience i went there thinking i would spend a couple of hours there one afternoon and then went back for the whole of the next day there is so much to see and look at and you can you can listen to all the white house tapes and all stuff like that and he's actually buried in the garden of the library and then the Reagan one is not that far away in Simi Valley. I went there just as it was opening, or just a year after it had opened. And all of these presidential libraries are absolutely fascinating, and every single president has got one. I mean, some of them are quite small, some of the older ones. But certainly most of the
1: post-war ones are well worth a visit. Gee, I would like to ask, because I've wrote the chapter on it, something that, a question that popped up in my mind a lot while reading and writing about Nixon was, why did he inspire this almost unique loathing, I mean perhaps until Trump. Unique
0: I, loathing. I think it all goes back to the Al Hiss case. What was that? The late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties. Yeah. And the left then regarded Nixon as the ultimate hate figure. And they always did. And he also because he was he was an awkward character, he wasn't like Reagan full of bonhomie and a sunny disposition, he didn't actually have an awful lot of allies on the right either. Mm. And I mean I think he was just seen as a more acceptable politician than Goldwater was for example and I mean he beat Reagan and one or two others to the nomination in 1968 and I think that was because people saw him he'd been vice president they knew who he was he acted as if he had charisma but I'm not really sure he ever really did he was I think also slightly different in private to how he was in public or something a lot of politicians suffer from and although he would he commanded a lot of loyalty from his close aides I'm not sure he inspired the kind of devotion that people like
1: Reagan and Kennedy ever did. Ian, thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations on getting this book done and persuading all these difficult people <laughs> to contribute a chapter. I hope it sells very well. It, it makes a very good stocking filler. It, it, well, it has to be a bloody big
0: stocking. Large um, stocking. It, It's It's a big book. It's also available as an e-book and um, an audio book. That was a challenge, to record the audio book, because there were lots of names of people and places and I hadn't got a clue how to pronounce them <laughs> so but Google is a wonderful thing we've also done a set of presidential mugs and playing cards which are better stocking fillers in a way you're showing a very American
1: entrepreneurship Indeed, an entrepreneurial you can style.
0: from politicos.co.uk on that
1: note we'll end it thanks Ian brilliant cheers thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano if you enjoyed it please subscribe and if you really enjoyed it please leave us a star rating preferably five stars and a review.